Psalm 32, uh, Matt Skeel of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curved with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. We all long for peace, and yet peace seems to elude us. There's a group called the Institute for Economics and Peace. It's a nonpartisan independent think tank. And each year they come out with something called the Global Peace Index. They've been doing this for the last 10 years. And in 2016, they came up with some very interesting findings. They found that out of all the countries in the world, there were only 10 countries that were not currently at war. They found that 81 countries became more peaceful over the last year. 79 countries became less peaceful. They found that there were 100,100 Uh, 101,406 deaths in battle, an increase of 19,601 since 2008. They recorded that there were 57 million refugees, displaced peoples and other peoples of concern. They found that violent crimes cost $1,876 per person, totaling $13.6 trillion dollars representing 13.3% of the world's total economic activity. We live in very tumultuous times. Just this last week we saw that as our country uh, sent missiles to Syria uh, in response to chemical attacks that were perpetrated against their own people. We've seen that uh, United States ships have been sent to North Korea. There's always wars and rumors of wars. There's always this threat of brutality, this threat of violence in our world. We see that not only on a global scale, but we also see that in our interpersonal relationships. Our interpersonal relationships are often wrought with conflict. Divorce is rampant. Abuse is rampant. Domestic violence happens all too often. We experience violence and strife in our personal relationships. Apologist Michael Ramsden was talking about loving one's neighbor, and he spoke about a colleague who went to Asia, and he told these students, imagine for me a peaceful situation. Imagine for me peace. One person described some beautiful flowers, trees, a beautiful field. One person described these beautiful snow-capped mountains. One person had a picture of a beautiful still lake. And there was one thing that was in common to all of these pictures of peace, 
None of them involved people. For all of them, the people was removed, were removed. Ramsden comments, isn't it interesting when asked to imagine peace, the first thing we do is eliminate everyone else. When we think of peace, we eliminate people because where people are, strife is soon to follow. We're given to violence on a national level and we're given to violence in our interpersonal relationships. But the Bible tells us it's even worse. We are given to violence against God. That we are enemies of God apart from Christ. That God is so holy and He is so righteous that He sees our pride and our selfishness and our violence and He chooses to separate Himself from us. That we became His enemies after the fall. And after the fall, we see this kind of downward spiral of humanity that that people get worse and worse and worse. That history repeats itself over and over and over again. Sometimes, occasionally, I like to get flowers for Stephanie, my wife, and When I get the flowers, they're usually beautiful and uh, full and just nice flowers, at least ideally. So I give them to her, and then they're beautiful, but just a week later, they start to wilt. A couple weeks go by, and they start to turn more and more brown until they get to just this, this mass of brown where the water gets all murky, and they're just completely dead, never again to bear life. And that's kind of a picture of what has happened When we're separated from God, our hearts get worse and worse and worse. Our hearts seemingly dry up when we're enemies of God. David, the psalmist in the psalm we just read, says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. The word for groaning, when David said that, He was groaning all night long. It's the same word that's used to describe a lion's roar. It's indicating the intensity of his struggle, the intensity of his turmoil within his own heart. His soul is withering. His guilt is heavy upon him. And his life is being sapped out of him. It's almost like he's at enmity with himself. He's his own worst enemy. So, As human beings, we gravitate toward violence on a national scale, on an interpersonal scale. We are enemies of God apart from Christ. And we also have turmoil within our own hearts. So where do we find peace? Where does peace come from? When two countries are warring, there's a few different ways that peace can be garnered. The first is that there can be this compromise, a ceasefire where each country gives up a little bit and they come to a peace. Other times, a country can completely decimate another country and then force them to surrender. But there's one thing that you'll never see. You'll never see a very strong, victorious army surrender to a very weak, inferior army. You'll never see that happen. But that's what happens with Jesus at the cross. We see this described in Luke chapter 22. The religious authorities come to arrest Jesus, to take him, to eventually crucify him. And one of his disciples says to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Shall we get out our swords and get ready for a battle? But the story continues on in Matthew 26. It says, And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you not think that I can appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? 
But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Jesus could have called down 12 legions of angels, each legion representing thousands of angels. And yet He surrendered Himself. He experienced the full weight of violence. All the violence and enmity that human beings could throw at Him, He experienced in the cross. See Farrar comments in the book The Life of Christ about what the crucifixion entailed. He said a death by crucifixion seems to include all that pain and death can have of the horrible and ghastly. Dizziness, cramps, thirst, starvation, sleeplessness, traumatic fever, shame, publicity of shame, long continuance of torment, horror of anticipation, anticipation, mortification of intended wounds, all intensified just up to the point at which they can be endured at all but all stopping just short of the point which would give to the sufferer the relief of unconsciousness. The unnatural position made every movement painful. And while each variety of misery went on gradually increasing, there was added to them the intolerable pang of burning and raging thirst. One thing is clear, the first century executions were not like the modern ones, for they did not seek a quick and painless death, nor the preservation of any measure of dignity for the criminal. On the contrary, they saw an agonizing torture that completely humiliated him. It's an important, it is important that we understand this. For it helps us realize the agony of Christ's death. Experience the full violence of everything that humanity could throw at him. And we see the depth to which humanity would sink. Uh, a number of years ago when I was growing up, uh, my parents used to like to watch uh, the great TV auction on the public broadcasting station. And on the great TV auction, there would just be items that would be uh, sold on TV, and you could call in and bid on these items. Then after this auction was over, they would have a sale where they would sell the items that either were unsold or that people didn't pick up. And so my parents went to this after sale where they could get things on a very reduced, at a very reduced cost, and uh, they saw this certificate for a model ship. Now, I loved pirate ships growing up, so they thought that I would like it. And uh, this ship was, I think they said it was worth like $700 or something crazy, uh, crazy priced. Uh, and I think they got it for maybe $25 or $50. They got it at a very reduced cost. So they were excited and told me about it. And then we went to this guy's house. And clearly he had a passion for making these ships. And clearly he had put a lot of time into making these ships. There was kind of nautical imagery all over his house and It was just his hobby and his passion to make these model ships. So I get this big ship that's worth, you know, $700 or whatever, take it home, and I remember that my dad tells me, now this is a ship that you don't want to play with. This is a ship that you want to, you know, keep nice. You just kind of put it on your your dresser and look at it. It's just a nice thing to look at. And I got it home, and I put it on my dresser, and I looked at it, and it looked like it was something that was nice to play with. So I tried to hold off on it, and I just tried to like, maybe just play with it just a little bit. I thought if I just play with it a little bit, it won't harm it. But then I played with it a little bit more, and eventually I destroyed the whole ship, $700 ship. I treated it something that was very valuable, something that had meaning to somebody else as something that was common. And that's what humanity did to Jesus. They treated someone who was very precious, 
the living Son of God, the Holy Son of God who had come to the earth to rescue humanity. They treated him as a common criminal, condemned him to death, spit on him, treated him with contempt. And in that, we see the full violence of all that humanity had to offer, the full weight of sin. But also, Jesus not only experienced the full violence of humanity, but he also experienced the full violence of God. He experienced the full wrath of God who became his enemy, who turned his back on his son. He was put on the cross as a man who was cursed by God. It says in Deuteronomy, cursed is the man who is hung on the tree. A man who was hung on a tree was someone who was cut off from society. Someone who was so bad that God had to deal with them. He's cursed by God. And he has that turmoil in his heart when he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experienced the full range of the wrath of God. And yet he chose not to fight back. He chose to surrender to the will of God through all of it. So the, test, the cross is not only a testament to mankind's sin and the depth to which they could go, but it's also a testament to the wrath of God, of God's anger towards sin. That sin is so serious that it would cost the living Son of God his very life. But it's not only a testament to great violence, it's a testament to great peace. The cross is a testament to great peace. The cross shows us that the way to answer violence is not by fighting violence with violence, but by laying down our own lives. By surrendering. The cross also achieves peace for us. The cross is not just an example for us. Jesus didn't just provide a, an example for us. But he surrendered, and in his surrender, he was victorious. He surrendered, but he didn't give up. He surrendered because he knew that through the, even the sinful actions of human beings, God would work his plan through him. He knew that through the violence and rage of the crowd, he would pay the penalty for mankind's sin. That he would pay the debt that we owe. Because our sin demands God's justice. Now we think about the justice of God, and sometimes people have a hard time understanding that. Why would God have this sense of justice? Why would his justice have to be satisfied? Think about it this way. Imagine a, another country uh, somehow bombed our country, killed 10,000 people. And then our president got up and he said, well, you know, I know who did this, but, you know, we're just going to choose to forgive them. We're not going to worry about what happened. We'll just kind of let it slide. Everyone would be calling for the president's head if that happened. Because there would be this call for justice that we have been harm that someone has done an injustice to us and now justice has to be served and that's kind of what the wrath of God is like God is a perfectly loving God but he's also a just God when he sees pride and selfishness and violence he's angry he doesn't like it and I think that's the God that we want to serve a God who is loving but he's also justice he will not allow sin to go unpunished and so Jesus experienced the full weight of God's wrath, the full weight of humanity's violence. And the truth is, we are all broken by sin. We all put Jesus on the cross. We're all part of that problem that is sin. Mel Gibson, a, few, a number of years ago, directed the movie The Passion of the Christ. 
And uh, Mel Gibson is a acclaimed actor in Braveheart, a number of other movies. Uh, but he wasn't in the movie as an actor uh, in, in The Passion of the Christ, except for in one spot where he strategically wanted to be in the movie. The one place that you'll see Mel Gibson is that you'll see his hands in the scene where he's pounding Jesus, the nails in Jesus' hands. It's his hands that are pounding the nail in Jesus' hands. The point was clear, that he felt that he was responsible for Jesus' death. And we could put any of us in that place, that we're all responsible for the death of Christ. Because our sin deserves God's judgment, the wrath of God. And yet Jesus offers us the way of peace. He cries out from the cross, Father, forgive them, they know not what they're doing. The Scriptures tell us the way that we experience that peace is by confessing our sin to God. Trusting in His forgiveness. Trusting in Him to rescue us. The psalmist says, I acknowledge my sin to you. And I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. He confesses to the Lord. And then we see the secret. The key to lasting joy. The key to what it means to live a life of significance. Not just a temporal happiness, but a deep-seated joy. What it truly means to be blessed. The psalmist says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is covered, or is forgiven. Whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, he says in verse 10. But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. The psalmist says, that's the person that's blessed. That's the person that's happy. And so we see that a, a forgiven life is a blessed life. A forgiven life is a life that's filled with joy. Forgiveness changes everything for us. The cross changes everything for us. At the God, cross, God offers us forgiveness, restored re- relationship with Him. We've been offered a great gift in the cross. A great sacrifice has been made for us, and the question is, what are we going to do with that? How are we going to respond to the sacrifice that Christ made for us? And maybe there are some people here who are still at enmity with God. You are still separated from God, and maybe you still are carrying around the full weight of your sins. And maybe today is the day that you unload those sins at the foot of the cross. That you confess those things before the Father and He offers you His forgiveness and makes you new. Others of us, maybe we just need to be reminded of the forgiveness that Christ offered. We need to be reminded of the beauty and joy of what it means to be saved and rescued from uh, eternity separated from God and hell. There's a story about an archbishop. I don't know the name of the archbishop, but it's a story recorded by N.T. Wright. And this archbishop tells this story. He says there once were three teenagers and they came to, uh, they entered into a Catholic church to confession. And they entered into it as kind of a joke. So they went up to the priest and they were, started confessing to all these sins that they didn't commit. You know, and they were laughing and just goofing around. And so the first two go in and confess all these, you know, made up sins and then they go out laughing. And then the third student goes in 
And he starts confessing these made-up sins. And the priest says to him, Now what I want you to do to show that you're repentant of these sins, I want you to go to the other side of the church, and there's a picture of Jesus there. And I want you to go up to this picture, and I want you to say this. I want you to say, you did all this for me, and I don't care that much. And I want you to say it three times. So the boy went up to the picture. He looked at the picture, and he said, you did all this for me, and I don't care that much. He said it again, you did all this for me, and I don't care that much. But he couldn't say it a third time. He broke down in tears, sobbing uncontrollably at what Christ had done for him. The archbishop who was telling the story said, the reason that I know the story is because I was that young man. N.G. Wright says says in response to this, there's something about the cross. Something about Jesus dying there for us, which leaps over all the theoretical discussions, all the possibilities of how we explain it this way or that way, and it grasps us. And when we are grasped by it, somehow we have a sense that what is grasping us is the love of God. So at this time, uh, Joel and Kim are going to come forward. We're going to sing another song. We're going to remember the sacrifice that Christ made for us. And as they're singing, the elements are going to be dispersed. And we'll partake of communion together as we remember the sacrifice that Christ made for us on the cross.